0: go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're uh, going back into 1 Corinthians. As you know, we took a little break from that book in January. Uh, But 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. And um, just to give you some um, introductory words, uh, this sermon is going to have a very different tone than usual because we're talking about an area uh, of, of grave concern within God's church, and that topic today is sexual immorality. So this, this is going to be a heavy message, and I just want you to know that in advance. This is also going to be a message that <clears throat> applies to every person in the room. It applies to those who are single, it applies to those who are married, it applies to those who are teenagers, um, it applies to every person in the room. The truth is that Christians can sin sexually, the truth is Christians do Sin sexually. And the Bible is filled with cautionary tales about good men and women who fell into this sin. If you think about it, Samson was the strongest man in the Bible, but he fell before lust, utterly humiliated. David was the godliest man in the Bible, and he won his battles with the lion, with the bear, with the giant, with the king, even with despair in the cave, Uh, but it was in the palace that he fell to lust. Solomon was the wisest man in the Bible, but he eventually took many wives who turned his wise heart to worship false gods. He fell before lust. And one thing we have to understand going into this topic is uh, this sin is too strong for you to overcome. This sin is too strong for me to overcome alone. And if we were left to ourselves with no help from God or the church, it would only be a matter of time before every one of us fell to this temptation. We are not smart enough. We are not strong enough. We're not godly enough. And frankly, we should be terrified of this temptation. Your only hope, the Bible says this morning, your only hope is to run for your life. And my challenge this morning is very simple. It's to every person in the room, but in particular, those who have taken steps who have begun the journey on the path of sexual immorality. And I don't know if it's been a week or if it's been six months or if it's been ten years, but my clear challenge to you this morning is turn around and run for your life. It's your only hope. Father, this morning we enter into your word, and this topic cannot be understated, Uh, Father. And while I bring the gravity of the truth to bear upon hearts in this room. You're gracious. Uh, Lord, we're here listening to your word because you long to show grace and mercy. Father, I pray this morning that our ears would be open to hear, that our hearts would receive everything you have to say. Speak through me. Work in our church and bring about purity, repentance, and revival. This is my prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 12. Okay, so we're talking about Corinth here, and I've told you a little bit of background in Corinth. Worse than Vegas. Okay, so what grade do you think they were getting on this area of their faith? Just take a guess. F minus. Okay. To the original audience, the basic message was not avoid sexual sin per se. (laughs) You're going to hear that the basic thing Paul was saying to the church in Corinth was this. Stop going to prostitutes. If you want to write that down, that's a one sentence summary of the message today. To the first church of Corinth, from Paul to Christians, stop going to prostitutes. They and they weren't just going to prostitutes, the reason they were going to prostitutes is because Jesus died on the cross to forgive their sins. They're now free from sin. So it's because of that that they reason they. All right, we got some work to do this morning. Are you ready? Chapter 6, verse 12, Paul begins to graciously address this topic by saying this All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Okay, jot this down, and then we'll start to unpack this. Uh, The first point that Paul makes, there'll be four today, about sexual sin is this. Uh, First, sexual sin brings nothing good. Write that down. Sexual sin brings nothing good. Um, And I have to help you to to know how to read this, because it gets a little tricky. But do you see the quotation marks around, all things are lawful for me? You see those? Okay. They didn't use quotes back then. So it's not like in the original they put quotes around that. What was going on here was the Corinthians had sent Paul a letter. Okay. So Paul was standing there with their letter. And he was like, all right, they said this, and then he wrote his letter to them. Okay. So this, this drives scholars crazy because what Paul is doing is he's reading from their letter, all things are lawful for me, meaning they said this to Paul, all things are lawful for me. And then Paul wrote back to them, but... So do you see how that's confusing? He quotes them. They said to him, Paul, all things are lawful for me. And then Paul writes back, but not all things are helpful. Now this give and take is really difficult to translate because they didn't use quotes and because we don't have the first letter on hand. So we often find ourselves kind of guessing what they said and what Paul said back to them. It would have helped if they had taken, you know, like English and they used quotes, but they just didn't. Uh, So that makes it a little tricky to translate this. But... What's happening here is Paul is quoting them. They're saying, all things are lawful for me. I can do what I want because I'm forgiven by grace in Christ. And they've got other reasons too we'll get to. But all all things are lawful for me. There's no consequences to this behavior. And Paul says back to them, no, no, not all things are helpful. Now, This group, who would be saying all things are lawful, would view grace as a license to sin. They would say, because I'm forgiven, there's no consequences. Um, And Paul actually kind of agrees. He's like, okay, yeah, the penalty of sin is canceled, but what you're doing brings no good. Because of the context, they're saying there's no side effects to my sexual behavior. There's none. And Paul has to start correcting them. The truth is this. Everyone who's caught up in sexual sin has an explanation. Yours might not be as theologically savvy as theirs, but uh, everyone who gets caught in this sin has an explanation. They've got an excuse why it makes sense, and some even convince themselves that God is okay with it. Ultimately, this is because they think good will come of it. All right? We have to understand this. This is how sin works. The reason why the married man begins to interact with the woman who's going to destroy his marriage is because he thinks good will come from it. Uh, The reason why the single high school student begins to get more and more intimate with his girlfriend is because he thinks good will come from it, okay? We're deceived. We think this is the best. Um, And then we're told lies, why this has to continue. We could lose him if we don't do this. We're going to feel like brother and sister if we only have a platonic relationship. I married the wrong person and, and the right one has come along and I must reach out. You see, we think good will come from it and sexual sin brings nothing good. I would say this. Sexual sin produces one mirage after another, and it never leads you to its promised paradise. All it is is a mirage. Let me talk to teenagers and young adults directly. Um, Unfortunately, you've been born into a a sex-crazed generation. We're sorry that that's the world you've uh, entered into, but welcome to it. You... We're born into a sex-crazed generation. Everywhere you look, TV, books, music, we are a sexually obsessed culture. Blatantly, shamefully, unapologetically, systematically, um, welcome. I apologize. But it's the reality. In fact, you're being told uh, in a thousand different ways a week that sexual sin in its various forms brings you good. Um, which is not what the Bible teaches, and many of us in this room believe it. In Gallup poll, we've got these stats on the screen. I'm not always a big fan of stats, but I researched these and felt that they were definitely eye-opening, worthy of sharing. In 2006, a Gallup poll said 79% of young adults say premarital sex is morally acceptable. Almost 8 in 10. Welcome to the world. A national survey of over 16,000 high school students, which that's a huge survey, said 46% of students in high school have had sex, 34% are currently sexually active. Okay, so the bottom line is this. Clearly the world around you thinks sexual sin brings good. It's bringing something good, which is why they do it. But the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimate that 10,000 teenagers are infected by an STD every day. Every day. Every day. One in four sexually active teenagers already has an STD. Good? They think good will come from it, but harm is what is virtually guaranteed. Um, And I would say this to our younger adults, to our teenagers. um, Next to the choice to put your faith in Christ, the choice to save yourself sexually for marriage is the best decision you can make, period. Period. There is no other decision that can change every moment of your life instantly, like this one. In an instant, every moment of your life can be changed, which is not true of many other sins. Have you made that choice? Have you agreed with God that sexual sin will bring you nothing good? If that's still foggy in your mind, I would challenge you to nail that down in your heart right now. That's the first point here. Sexual sin brings nothing good. Uh, The second point that he makes here is this. Jot this down. Sexual sin enslaves you. Uh, Sexual sin enslaves you. It says in verse 12, the second part, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful or beneficial. All things are lawful for me. And then he responds, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Uh, That word enslaved can be translated controlled, uh, mastered, Get this in the New King James, brought under the power of sexual sin. Um, But we're told it's freeing, we're told it's liberating, we're told it's it's exhilarating. Uh, It's thrilling to go all the way. Uh, Living together is so satisfying before marriage. Chasing an affair feels so new. But listen, what we call freedom, God calls bondage, absolute bondage. It's painful, it's humiliating, it's enslavement. William Barclay said this, The great fact of the Christian faith is not that it makes a man free to sin, but that it makes a man free not to sin. That's true freedom. It's freedom from having to give in to the temptation, not freedom to give in to the temptation. And you have to understand that the way sin works is uh, sin keeps sin alive. And once you begin to feed the monster, the only thing it feeds on is sin. And when you take those first steps down this path, sin will demand more and more and more to keep the sin alive, and you'll be trapped. I'll never forget when I was uh, working at my old church. I went to Caribou Coffee to do some Bible prep, uh, probably getting a message ready to talk to some teenagers that night. And I was just sitting there reading my Bible, doing some work, and this couple came in, and they, they uh, came in very quickly, sat down at a table behind me, and we were kind of toward the back of the, uh, of the coffee shop. Um, And I noticed that they were kind of talking in hushed tones like this. Um, And and they were talking very fast and they were talking very quietly. And that got my attention. And uh, I mean, for better or for worse, sometimes I listen to other people's conversations. I'll admit it. Anyone else? So, So there I am and I'm just trying to get some work done and I'm listening to these two talk. And then I hear the guy say, you almost got me caught yesterday. He said, my kids were in the room. I had to hang up the phone. And I was like, <laughs> so then I pretended to work, but I was really just listening. <laughs> and he's like, you almost got me caught. And, they, and they, had, they had brought gifts for each other, and they were opening little presents, wrapped in red bags, and, uh, and then they got out their day planners. He's like, well, where, where do you want to go next? you want to go to Europe? Okay, yeah, let's put that down. We'll meet at the airport. Uh, you want to go to, me- let's go to Mexico. Yeah, that would be great. Okay. And within 20 minutes off, they went. Uh, and I felt sick to my stomach, sick. Um, you ever see the show Cheaters? I kind of wanted to like do something, like, like just get up and go over and be like, excuse me, sir, you're on the show Cheaters right now. There are cameras all over this room. <laughs> Your wife is watching outside in a van. What do you have to say for yourself? They're just like run, but <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, I was rattled. I closed the Bible and I left. And and I just had a a rare window into this man's life. Um, Why? Why were they sneaking around? Why were they talking in hushed tones? Um, Why was he afraid of getting caught? Because sin demands more sin. And with the sexual sin comes the lying and the deception and the sneaking around and the cheating. And guess what that is? That's slavery. That's being trapped. There's a reason why he can't bring that into the light, because he knows it's wrong. Um, And there's a reason why you feel the way you feel when you do what you do. And you'll find yourself far further down the trail of sin than you thought. Because you're not in control of it. It's in control of you. Um, I've heard someone say a relationship is like a hallway. And when you enter into a relationship, especially a forbidden relationship, there are many escape windows right there, low to the ground, very wide, and you can get out easily. But the further you go down this relationship, the further you walk into this hallway, the smaller the windows become. The further apart they're spaced, the higher off the ground they are, and it becomes eventually nearly impossible to escape. And I think that's true. And it's because sexual sin enslaves, controls, masters, brings you under its power. And sin feeds sin. Proverbs 5, 20 to 23, we'll put it up on the screen. Old Testament and New speaks of sexual sin the same way. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Hey, sexual sin brings nothing good. Hey, sexual sin enslaves you. That's the truth. Moving on to the third point, you can jot this down. Sexual sin disgraces your relationship with Christ. Sexual sin disgraces your relationship with Christ with christ there is no such thing as a victimless sin when you're a christian because the lord always has an opinion look at verse 13 continuing on here paul says in verse 13 food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and god will destroy both one and the other the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the lord and the lord for the body so they were reasoning this they were like Hey, food was made, for, portillos was made for my stomach, and my stomach was made for portillos. But they were saying more than food. They were using that as an analogy to say sex is made for the body, and the body is made for sex. It's that simple, it's that natural, it's that innocent. Uh, it was one of their little statements here. Now, there's two ways to interpret this verse, so follow me carefully here. Uh, the way the ESV, my Bible, renders it is they put the quotes around food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food End quote. So again, the, the scholars are guessing. They're guessing that what the Corinthians said was that. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. To which Paul replies, but God's going to destroy them both so your argument doesn't work. Okay, now I don't think that's as coherent as the second option, which is to move the quotes back to behind um, the word other. So it would read like this. Quote, Corinthians say, quote, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. In other words, that's their argument. Because my body is going to be destroyed after this life, there's no lingering consequences. It can't hurt my soul. That's much more in keeping with the Greek thinking of the time. My body's going to go in the tomb. My soul's going to go up to glory. Who cares what I do with the body? The Lord's going to destroy them both. I think that's a better translation of this. Then Paul responds the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And, and just in case that's confusing, here's the basic summary. Paul is basically saying to them, whichever translation you use, your argument stinks. Your argue, everybody say, your argument stinks. And when you talk to somebody who's caught in sexual sin, when they tell you why they're doing it, how they're doing it, the bottom line is their argument stinks. stinks. Uh, they just had this reasoned argument that dealt with how, uh, what happens to our body after this life. We learn here that God has a purpose for your body in this life and the next life. Therefore, God is the one who determines what you do with your body. And what you do with your body, get this, has eternal implications, even if you're a Christian. Check out verse 14. Well, what does he mean? Verse 14, it says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So past tense, God raised Jesus up. You know, he had to actually tell them later in the book, that, uh, that, that they have to believe in the resurrection of the dead. This is how warped they were in this church. He had to be like, the dead come back to life. And they're like, no. And he's like, Christian, Jesus came back from the grave. And they're, talk, they're like, no, the dead, the bodies aren't raised. That doesn't happen. They're messed up. <clears throat> Past tense, God raised Christ up. It says future tense, God will raise us. Oh, great, I'm going to come back, same body. With my back still going to be bad? No, you get a perfect glorified body. But listen, it's you that comes out of the grave. It's a bodily resurrection that we're looking forward to in the future. He will raise us by his power. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. All right, present tense. So past tense, God raised Jesus. Future tense, he's going to raise us. Present tense, God united you to Christ spiritually making you and me the physical presence of Jesus here on earth. You and me, we are the physical presence of Jesus here on earth. That makes your body very important. That makes what you do with it very significant. There's a good word here. The good word here is there's never a moment in your life when Jesus is out waiting in the car. You're united to him forever. You are one with him spiritually. Never will he leave you never will he forsake you. Not in death, not in life, never. Hey, I don't know about you, but I like that truth. I like that truth a lot. And, and why would God do that? Really, us? Us? And, and some of the other Christians that you know, God has united himself to them forever? That's an astonishing truth. Uh, and that astonishing truth has sexual implications because Jesus is never out waiting in the car. Therefore, every relationship, especially sexual relationships, should be governed by our primary unbreakable union with our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is where Paul's going. All right, check out verse 16. Do you not know, verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. I'm quoting Genesis there. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him okay so therefore christians you are bringing christ with you to the prostitute are you amazed at how gracious paul is that he's he's going point by point with their little reasons and he's walking them through but he's basically saying to them you're taking christ with you to the prostitutes how'd you like that to come up in your small group accountability time um yes I've been going to prostitutes, but uh, I've only been doing it because I know Jesus died for all of my sins. (laughs) And yet Paul is so gracious, point by point, he's having a little conversation with him here. Um, But listen, this is true for us too. Um, When when we sin sexually, we find ways, especially if we're Christians, to reason our way through it. And we have to be told that our sexual sin is a disgrace to our spiritual union with Christ. We don't like to think that. We don't want to face that. And when we're believers and we think we can live in sexual immorality, we are dead wrong. Christ is not okay with it. Christ is not okay with it. Um that's why you feel guilty when it's done that's why you feel like you can't peel the shame off of you even though you try that's why the tears roll down your cheeks it's because you know that Christ is not okay with it and I say that with compassion and I say that with conviction because New Testament and Old, God gives us time to repent. And if we don't, things get very bad for us. Check out Revelation 2, 21 to 23. We'll put it on the screen. This is uh, <clears throat> the Apostle John writing letters to various churches. Imagine if the Lord Jesus decided to write us a personal letter. Dear Harvest Payless, here you go. Well, one of the churches got this written in their letter about one woman in their church. He said this, I gave her time to repent So the patience that the Lord is showing you will run out. And it will run out sooner than you think. Christ is furiously angry if you are involved in sexual sin right now. And he is planning your painful season of agony as I speak. And he's watching how you're responding to every word that I say. And if you're hiding it or justifying it or reasoning through it, you have to face this. I'm afraid for you. And you have to turn and run for your life. Because you know you're disgracing your relationship with Christ. Sexual sin brings nothing good. Sexual sin enslaves you. Sexual sin disgraces your relationship with Christ. You can jot this down, which I've said already. So you must run for your life. Verse 18 Verse 18 says it. Flee from sexual immorality. All right, what doesn't it say? What doesn't it say? It doesn't say fight it. Beat it back. Chase it away. What does it say? Flee. Let's say that together. Flee. Can you win the battle with sexual sin? No, you cannot. If you stand your ground and you try and fight it and and you begin to dance with where we draw the line, and, and how far can we go? And you're going down all the way. And you have to flee and run for your life. And I want you to remind this when you find yourself in the pull of sexual sin, uh, when you find yourself being drawn in, um, I want you to say, I have to sprint without stopping right now. And I don't just mean run like you're running. I mean run from something dangerous. Like check this picture out. You're running from this. That's that's right behind you, all right? Okay? Flee. Flee. Don't do this. Here, kitty, 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 kitty. What? He's a good kitty. He's a nice kitty. Run! Run now! That's what it's saying. Flee. And the term here is Flee from sexual immorality. So um, already, we, we, we came with a little attorney installed within our minds. Do you guys know that, that litigates for us? Trying to always come to our defense and tell us that what, what we're doing is actually right compared to what other people are doing. And I'm sure that attorney right now is taking the podium in your heart saying, yeah, but he's not talking to us. So what am I talking about? Well, the term pornea here is the broadest term used for sexual sin. It's an umbrella term that includes all forms of sexual behavior besides sex in marriage. So, husband, wife, sex is the only, and, and the only New Testament and Old, elevated right outlet for sexual experiences. Any other form of sexual gratification would be included in this term, which would include adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, sex before marriage, pornography, pedophilia, you name it, it's included in this word. Now, there's two ways, again, to interpret verse 18. It says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Okay, now the ESV takes one way, and the ESV says this is basically all Paul's words. So Paul is saying every other sin a person commits is outside the body, um, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So the ESV is assuming that Paul is the one talking, and he's the one saying all these other sins are out here, But sexual sin does something unique. It hurts your own body. All right. I don't think this is the best translation of this because, frankly, there are many other sins that hurt your body Uh, drunkenness, gluttony, suicide. Um, And it doesn't necessarily make coherent sense that he would just all of a sudden start saying this, um, especially since the Corinthians' argument has surrounded the body. Okay. So I think the, the second way to interpret this is this. The Corinthians are saying, so you would put quotes around. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, end quote. Um, the ESV actually supplied the word other. So it actually reads in the Greek, every sin a person commits is outside the body. And that sounds like something they would say, right? Their first argument was, well, my body's gone after I die, so who cares what I do with it? Now they're saying, well, every sin I commit is outside the body. In other words, it doesn't even hurt my body. You can't get into my body here. Uh, it sounds like an argument they would make. So I think it's best to assume the Corinthians are saying every sin a person commits is outside the body. Paul responds, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then the two reasons he gives goes along with this argument. He's trying to convince them that their sexual sin pollutes the inside of their own body here. What's his reasoning? Well, he's basically saying again, just because I don't want you to get lost in the whole translation thing. He's saying again, your argument stinks. Your argument stinks. All sin happens out my body. It doesn't hurt me on the inside. Your argument stinks. Sexual sin hurts your body. The first sub-point is this. You must run for your life first because God's Spirit is in you. Uh, Because God's Spirit is in you. In verse 19, it says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Uh, Have you forgotten that God's Holy Spirit lives in your body? Therefore, your body is indwelled as a temple of the living God, making your body currently individually holy ground. And you think you can go and sin sexually and it's not going to cause problems on the inside? God's spirit is in there. Yes, it's going to cause problems. 2nd subpoint: you must run for your life because God's spirit is in you. You must run for your life because God purchased you. Verse 19 continues, it says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. So because God's purchased you, you don't belong to you. Put yourself in this this terminology here. You were bought at a price. There you were, chained up, bound in the slave market of sin, and you could not set yourself free. You could not set yourself free. And God comes along realizes that you're a slave and he says i'll take her and what did he pay for you christ the the ransom that was owed to satisfy god's justice at the cross was the perfect sinless savior who died for you i'll take her and i'll give my my most treasured possession to get her so therefore you're not your own you don't belong to you you belong to god it's, it's not your body ownership-wise. And by the way, you're not the only one in there. God the Spirit dwells within you. God the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He has a will. He has a voice. He's spoken in the, God, in the, uh, in the New Testament. Um, he's got feelings. Got, he's got thoughts. You can stay in step with Him. You can grieve Him. And sexual sin provokes Him. And your primary purpose, the primary purpose of your body in every respect is to bring glory to God. Now, this has been a lot to take in. Um, And I would doubt there would be a person in the room who has lived in complete and total victory over sexual sin. Um, Maybe there's a nun somewhere who gave herself into that lifestyle at a very early age and she somehow has managed to pull it off. Okay? Okay. Um, self-included, I believe that we have all fallen in this area in different ways at different times in our lives. This message is not about heaping condemnation on God's people. This message is about trying to get all of us to a place uh, where we can say, in accordance with what we read last week, this is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the lord jesus christ and by the spirit of our god so i want to end on a redemptive note i want to invite you this morning to take any and every necessary steps drastic action um, to break off all relationships that involve sexual immorality all practices all habits and today and The way that you do that is to bring it into the light. You have to confess it. You have to confess it either to a small group leader, to an elder, to me, to a youth leader. Um, You have to confess it. It has to come out into the light or it's just going to grow stronger. And that's a hard thing to hear, but it's always the right time to turn around and run for your life. It's always the right time. And the reason why the Lord brought you here to hear this message this morning is because he does not want you to incur judgment. Oh, there's going to be consequences, and God won't take those away. Um, He'll use them in your life. But the Lord wants to forgive, to redeem, and wants to lead you into a season of peace and joy and power that you have not known possible. And he wants it to start today. So I'm going to invite you right now to close your eyes, to bow your heads, And we're going to begin right here with a private call to repentance and confession. This is your chance. This is your chance to take the first step. And I'm going to read Psalm 32, which David wrote. And David had failed in this area tragically. And after spending an entire year covering up not only a sexual sin, but a murder to follow, David finally came clean. And as I read Psalm 32, uh, my hope is that this would be the expression of your heart this morning. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. With your eyes closed and your heads bowed, make this a private time of prayer and confession between you and the Lord. Father, as your people draw near to you, Lord, some who are remembering painful, shameful seasons in their past that have, have faded into a distant memory. Or they may be wondering if they ever have brought that before you, confessed it and let it go. Lord, hear their prayers this morning and give them freedom that they've not known Father for those who presently have fallen under conviction this morning Lord they definitely need fear they need fear because you will judge sexual immorality but that's not all they need I pray that you would give them faith that you will provide the right person at the right time If it's your will that they would get married, that you will give them again fresh renewal and satisfaction in their marriage, if they fear that it's forever gone. They need faith that if they've been called to a life of singleness, you will fill them with joy and companionship that they otherwise would not have known. Lord, they need they need hope. Teenagers in this room need hope, Father, that you can give them the strength to wait and to win. They need hope. And Father, everyone needs help. I just pray that they would find a brother, a sister, a leader, and they would say, I need help. I need help. Will you help me? Because we can't do this alone. Not one of us can do this alone. We lift all of these prayers up to you. We come into your presence, Lord, knowing that we will find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. And we pray now that the lies of the enemy, that the condemnation he so wishes to heap upon us, we pray that all of that would dissipate and that we would simply find a loving Father embracing us as we come back into his arms. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.